From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host, OCFA's Assistant Chief of Organizational Planning, Mike Schrader. All right, welcome back to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. Uh, in this week's episode, uh, we've got the great privilege of having uh, my friend and uh, your fellow fire captain and OCFA employee, Danny Kamakani, interviewing wildland resource defense planner, George Ewan, uh, who's retiring after 47 years in the fire service. It's just outstanding, pretty cool. Uh, the joke is, we, you know, we're looking forward to hearing about uh, how it was to do wildland firefighting back in the late 60s. All kidding aside, uh, George, we're, uh, we're super happy for you. Um, just listen in for a little audio clip of that interview coming up. There were times when I was asked to go live at the lookout tower. You, you didn't live in the cabin, you lived up in the tower. And it had a trap door, and inside the, inside the cabin uh, you had a bed, you had a Coleman stove, and you had a desk, and in the middle of it was your... Uh, your, as your firefinder, and you lived up there 24/7. And um, the alarm clock, if it wasn't the sun coming up, since you were so high, the sun came up early. At at Black Mountain, uh, my alarm clock was a a black bear, and he'd wake up every morning. And he'd come to the tower, and he'd scratch his back on the legs of the tower and make the tower vibrate and send noises through it. And I'd wake up, toss a couple of slices of bread out to him. He'd grab up the bread, and down the hill he'd go. And so we became pretty good buddies over the weeks that I was there. So that's coming up soon, but before we get to that, let's uh, review a few uh, news and noteworthy items. Uh, first, with Thanksgiving behind us and the holidays out in front of us, uh, we wanted to uh, just highlight something from the communication and public affairs section. Uh, it's, uh, they're hosting a holiday safety message and it's a giveaway on social media. And, and basically what they're gonna do is they're gonna cover a new safety message every week uh, from could be cooking, uh, tree safety, uh, so that or whatever. But every member of the public who likes one of their messages on social media uh, then can enter into a drawing to win a fire helmet full of OCFA emergency preparedness swag. Um, so please make sure to, to share those messages um, on Facebook. And when you see them pop up, so then we can increase the amount of followers that we reach um, with uh, this social media platform and ultimately keep people safe during the holidays, which is always, we kind of see a spike in a variety of different injuries and, uh, and issues. So thanks for your help there in uh, assisting the communications and public affairs section. All right, as you know, um, or probably saw Chief Young's recent memo regarding the voluntary protection days, which obviously uh, created a lot of traffic and interest. Uh, OCFA management and the union uh, 3631 just met uh, this last Tuesday, the 28th, to discuss and amend the current days allowed to be protected, specifically around the holidays. As of right now, the voluntary protection days will not be allowed for December 23rd through December 26th. All the other days that have been previously off the table are now back on, so you can start protecting uh, once again. Remember, this enhancement is really in its infancy, uh, and, and the stages are certainly going to continue to develop. We'll work side by side with uh, the local, but we're committed to figuring out new ways in any way, shape, or form to aid the work-life balance that folks are facing out there in the field. So any feedback you have, uh, just uh, please be sure to send it to Chief Young or Chief Adams uh, in charge of our staffing um, so that we can continue to evaluate this process. 
Next, we have uh, the Orange County Fire Service uh, Remembrance Ceremony. It's coming up on Monday, December 4th at 10 a.m. Uh, at the Firefighters Memorial in front of the Hall of Admi Administration in Santa Ana. As you recall, we had to postpone it with the Canyon Fires. Um, all personnel that are planning on attending, please make sure to coordinate with your uh, battalion chief for coverage. Uh, obviously, overtime is not authorized. And uh, if you do come out, uh, just as that, that show of respect for the fallen um, and uh, what a neat ceremony it is, please, if you could, wear your Class A. It would be appreciated. It's the annual event uh, where we get this opportunity to gather and really honor those fire service professionals who passed away during the previous year. And then also that neat time where we get to reaffirm uh, the oath of office that, that we'll take together. All right, uh, we have uh, also uh, coming up uh, with uh, Chief uh, Brian Young, our Ops Chief. Uh, he sent out a memo on November 7th regarding the inspection program enhancements, and that's something they're looking to tinker with a little bit. So this is an opportunity, if you're interested in making improvements to the inspection program, uh, get your ideas in. Uh, just take a few minutes to fill out that form. I know we send out a lot of surveys, and we certainly don't want to have you suffer from uh, quote-unquote uh, survey fatigue, but that's how we get better as an agency. We, we need your input if you're the ones in the front line providing the service you are in the best position to help us improve the program so please send in those those um, those surveys regarding the inspection enhancement program next I wanted to just highlight uh, uh, something from Sports Service Society as you'll recall uh, Chief Anderson recently sent out a memo on capital improvement projects uh, a couple notable ones station 20 and both and station 61 for that matter are both on schedule and open uh, plans uh, maybe summer of 18 and the staff is working with the city officials to kind of identify different options for a couple other stations and rebuilding them, Fire Station 9 and 10. Um, so there's movement there, and that's pretty exciting. And then we have both Phase 1 and Phase 2 of the USAR warehouse. Phase 1 uh, was just completed in October, and that was widening existing openings, reinforcing the concrete floor, and then uh, doing some improvements to the ventilation system. And then Phase 2 is now being planned for, and that's kind of working on the office spaces and training classrooms. Um, and then getting the equipment and apparatus that are going to be planned to be moved in there. So some exciting um, action going on there at the USAR warehouse. Uh, additionally, on the uh, capital improvement program, there's an update to our 800 megahertz radio system, and that's been a, just a multi-year um, project underway with Orange County Communications and uh, them working to upgrade our entire radio system. Um, so it'll help us with interoperability. We're going to be adding encryption for fire radios and then also uh, working on additional enhancements that the radios provide for us that you'll I think you'll find pretty neat. Uh, the first step is deploying those new radios, so look for those. Those are going to be the new uh, pack sets you'll be getting shortly after the beginning of the year. And, uh, and then in general, IT is just working uh, on a bunch of different uh, fronts to both improve our security on the cyber side, as well as replacing aquifers, upgrading station PCs. Um, so look for those, especially, I think they're starting in Battalion 1, 3, and 8. So you'll see them start cycling through the stations to, to upgrade your, your PCs. Um, so again, a lot of great stuff going on there um, in the uh, support services section. So uh, thanks to Chief Anderson and all your efforts out there. All right, uh, the training section uh, just came out with the 2018 uh, schedule classes. So uh, it's pretty exciting for those of you who are interested in promoting and self-improvement. A uh, couple changes to the enrollment process this year. The training program specialist, uh, who's Jason Kaya, as you know, and then Tara um, in training, put a lot of effort into making this registration process uh, become more user-friendly. I just kind of looked at it and what they were doing and sat down with Tara and pretty impressive. Uh, so check out ocfatraining.org. Uh, full details on the class can be found on the recent memo posted on the 28th of November. Um, please send your feedback so that they can continue to improve it, uh, the process that is, and the website. 
and be sure to sign up uh, for some of those classes that we offer. Obviously, um, you know, if you're promoting or preparing to promote, um, those are the classes that are there for you to develop you, to give you the, the knowledge, skills, and abilities to be successful in the process. So please go ahead and look at uh, ocfatraining.org or check the memo for the link. Lastly, uh, just a quick shout out to um, those members, uh, both professional staff and then obviously a boatload of operations folks who recently took our uh, peer support training. Um, our last board meeting, we had the board authorize an enhanced contract with Counseling Team International who had already been doing our uh, CISD mental health professional side, but now with the push for behavioral health enhancements, you're, you're going to see this widening scope of, of uh, capabilities and services really that are going to be provided for our, for our members. Uh, literally the spouses or anybody who lives with you in your residence could be kids, uh, significant other, uh, grandparents, whoever lives with you in that same residence, and then also uh, retirees. Uh, what a great enhancement to really make sure that we help those uh, who've been exposed to a, a lot of difficult scenarios. So again, um, shout out to those who took the peer support training. I can't thank you enough. Uh, it says a lot about our, our own who want to help um, in time of need. So really appreciate your help there, guys. Thank you. All right, now that I've uh, sucked the oxygen out of the room, um, let's move from news and noteworthy and let's get to our feature segment, which is with Fire Captain Danny Kamakani, where he sits down with our fire service super veteran, George Ewan. Hey guys, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, my name's Daniel Kamakani. I'm a captain here on the Santiago crew. And I'm here today with George Ewan, our wildland resources planner. Um, he's about to retire after 47 years of service, so we're just going to talk to him about his uh, career before he, he heads off into retirement. So, uh, first George, uh, how did you get your start in fire? Well, thank you for having me, and uh, let me share some stories and some of my background. Um, I got started in 1968. It was kind of a fluke. I was with a roommate who lived next door to a forest ranger in the southwest New Mexico. And just out of a fluke, I filled out an application. Didn't know anything about it, didn't know anything about the Forest Service, and completely forgot about it. And in May of 1968, I got a call and from the, the Gila National Forest offered me a job to fight fire. And I had to have them repeat that again, doing what? And they said fighting forest fires. Uh, sure, why not? So I started in 1968, May of 1968, uh, was in college and had my summer planned, never planned on doing anything like this. And when I got to the station, uh, was remote station from the nearest town, it was 88 miles on paved highway. And when the pavement ended, you were at the station. That was the nearest town. And there, uh, there was another town that we took you about 60 miles of dirt road to get there. So it was really remote, and I thought, man, what am I doing here? I can't wait to get back to civilization. There was seven people that worked at this station. The ranger, the assistant ranger, and then five fire guys. And we were really known more as smoke chasers back in those days. Um, the lookout tower would give us the location of a fire, and, or their smoke that they saw, and we would throw our fire packs in the back end of the pickup, and we'd drive out, and then put our packs on and walked across country and sometimes we took the horses and rode across country. Um, I spent some time and you know it was the uh, the firefighting technique was basically the same as it is today. 
you had a shovel, you had a, a Pulaski, and you had a Cordic. And we had sleeping bags that we slept in, paper sleeping bags, believe it or not. And if you had to spend the night out there, you slept in those things. And uh, you took uh, three meals, K-rat or C-rats with you, and you, you existed. And when the fire was out, then you walked back to the truck and drove, came back to the station and waited for your next one. Um, there are a few occasions that we had to go by helicopter. Um, back in those days, it was the old B-3. If you're familiar with MASH, the TV show, the helicopter that they used to medical aids, that was the helicopters we flew in. We thought those were the coolest things in, since sliced bread. And um, they'd drop you off someplace in the middle of the wilderness and you'd go put your fire out and then you'd have to hike out. And um, so it was just the remoteness and the primitive lifestyle that you just got used to. That's what you did. Um, there were times when I was asked to go live at the lookout tower. Um, the one that I was on the most, well, the most, the, the times that I was there was a place called Black Mountain Lookout. It was about 9,000 feet elevation. Uh, it had a log cabin that was on the ground on the top of the mountain. and. It had a refrigerator in there, and at the beginning of the year, we had to take in um, big bottles of butane, propane, so we could get the refrigerator going, and hopefully it lasted for a few days, and, and the seals hadn't weathered through the winter. And um, Anyway, that was primitive. You, you didn't live in the cabin. You lived up in the tower, and it had a trap door, and inside the, inside the cabin, uh, you had a bed, you had a Coleman stove, and you had a desk, and in the middle of it was your, uh, your, asthma, your fire finder. And you lived up there 24-7. And um, the alarm clock, if it wasn't the sun coming up, since you were so high, the sun came up early. At, at Black Mountain, uh, my alarm clock was a, a black bear. And he'd wake up every morning, and he'd come to the tower, and he'd scratch his back on the legs of the tower and make the tower vibrate and send noises through it, and I'd wake up, toss a couple of slices of bread out to him, he'd grab up the bread, and down the hill he'd go. And so we became pretty good buddies over the weeks that I was there. And you had nobody to talk to, there was no, well, other than the radio. Um, nobody came by. Uh, if somebody did come by, you knew they were coming, because they were coming from the station bringing you some more groceries. Um, but that was, you know, again, the primitive lifestyle. Um, while I was on that forest, I did experience being a smoke chaser. I was on a helitac crew. I was a helitac foreman for a while. Uh, I worked on a hand crew. Back in the days, we didn't call them engines. We had uh, pumpers. And now, when ICS, you can tell that that's pre-ICS. Pre when ICS got initiated, then we went to the engines. We started calling them engines because we didn't have pumpers, and the bigger ones were called tankers, but tankers flew. You know, they weren't slurry bombers anymore, they were tankers. So, you know, just the whole evolution of the language that we used uh, has changed. I left I, from the forest, um, while I was on the forest, I also managed uh, the interagency communication center, dispatch center, uh, for that quarter portion of the state, uh, the forest, uh, the state of New Mexico, and Bureau of Land Management and left there, left the Gila in uh, 1990, came to Southern California into, then it was South Zone, now it's known as South Ops, as the South Zone Dispatcher, managed that for a while, promoted, and by the time I retired from 
the Forest Service. I was the Deputy Assistant Director for Operations for Southern California. And like I mentioned before, um, I retired. Jokingly, I say I left there on Friday and walked into Orange County on Friday, but actually I took a week off, took a vacation, and came to Orange County in September of 2000 and thought I'd give them 10 years and 17 later, it's time to go home. All right, great. And um, so you, you've been in the fire service a long time and um, you've seen a lot of, a lot of changes and uh, where we work is pretty interesting in the, mm -hmm. the fire ecosystem that uh, we operate in. Um, so what are some of the most significant changes that you've seen over your 47 years in ways that uh, we manage fires and ways that we suppress fires? When I got started, the rule of, that we lived by was every fire was put out at 10 acres or less by 10 a.m. the next morning, 10 a.m. policy. And all fire was considered bad fire. The forest that I was on, uh, we would have three to 400 fires a year and 99% of them were all lightning fires. So we chased lightning like it was going out of style. And we put every fire out as small as we could, um, even if it was just a, a single tree, pine tree, fire in the top of it, we'd wait for it to burn, either burn out or we'd cut it down and put it out. So every fire was put out as small as we could. And that was the, the rule that we lived by. Everybody lived by at that time. And over the years, it started to change and we realized that there was a lot of dead material left on the ground after all these fires and that fire was really part of the natural ecosystem and that fire was needed to maintain a healthy forest. And the forests were becoming overgrown too many seedlings, too many trees, uh, not uh, blocking out the sun, which led us into, led us, led the Forest Service into a policy of fire use. Some people will call it let burn. And in some places, it's a really good policy. And again, back when I started and when all this started to take place, the forest that I was on was three and a half million acres and influenced probably by maybe 100,000 people at the most. That was the state of Arizona, state of New Mexico. And then as I progressed through and then came to California, you have forests here that are impacted by 17 million people. And then in Orange County, you've got a couple million people that are impacting about 150 to 200,000 acres of open space. So that fire use policy doesn't really become applicable here in a safe manner because of lots of other aspects. But the overall management and style of fire is you've got to keep them as small as you can because you're protecting life and property first, especially the life, you know, people's lives. There's not one fire, one tree, one bush that's worth the loss of a life, much less loss of a house. So we have to be a stronger suppression here. So over the years, I've seen it go from being a very strict policy every place that you do keep your fire small to going into a fire use where you can let fires get bigger, clean up the forest, clean up the, the uh, environment uh, to places where even though you need it, you can't really apply it. So it's, it's just a really um, in, intense way that you have to manage and look at what, what's around you and what, uh, what the environment is around you that you can apply the different types of management styles. As far as the suppression goes, um, there's always been firefighters with people on, with hand tools. There's always been fire trucks. There've always been uh, air tankers, bulldozers. The tools really haven't changed that much as far as the suppression tactics. It's just the amount that you have to use anymore. Um, 
going from decades where we had lots of small fires and very few large fires to the recent decades where we have still lots of small fires, but we've got some tremendously large fires that's just eaten up the countryside. The packs, when you pack your pack, um, because of the elevations and where we were and the likelihood of uh, having cool nights, you always put a fairly heavy coat, jacket in the bottom of it, and that became uh, the cushion for your lower back. Uh, we put uh, three boxes of sea rats, sea rations. Um, we, that was your meals for 24 hours. Um, you had a one-gallon canteen full of water. Uh, you had a paper sleeping bag that was rolled up and stuck in there, and you would put the head of your cortic uh, inside of it. You know, cortic is like a McLeod, but it's detachable. So on the outside of the pack, you carried your shovel, your Pulaski, and the handle to your cortic. And on the inside was the head of the cortic, and your files uh, to sharpen your tools, um, batteries, extra socks and clothing that you might want and that's about all that fit in the pack uh, compared to today's packs that no telling what they put in you know there's a lot of uh, hydration um, substances a lot more water a lot more foods and snacks that we just didn't well the, hyd the hydration was not thought of other than you just needed water um, the extra snacks you didn't think of because it just added weight because you're carrying your packs a long ways. You know, you, you might get left off by helicopter on a peak someplace and then the helicopter would fly the direction of where the fire was at because we may not be able to see it and then we just was cross country. You didn't know where you're going, you didn't follow trails, it was just go off the side of the hill or go up the top and you didn't want a bunch of extra weight on your back tying you down and you, you really didn't know what kind of vegetation that you were getting into. Um, there was another fire that I was on, um, on the east side of the forest, and it was in an old burn from back in the 40s. And it was full of, um, we called it cat claw. And it's a bush, a bush that just has lots of thorns on it. And literally ripped the shirt right off of me because it looked, it was so thick that as we were trying to get through it, it was also in an aspen stand, and as we were trying to get through it, that it would just grab a hold of your clothes and, and just rip. You, you couldn't separate the brush to walk through it. So you just kind of put your helmet on, your hard hat, and put your head down and just, you know, pile right through it, try to get to the fire and get it out. And to give somebody the, to give the, the fire, back in those days, the fire control officers the excuse that, well, I can't get there because of the cat claw, nah. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> you know, stay out there an extra day, find a way to get to it, and put it out. And so you, the packs of those days were much different than they are today. And um, so it's, and the, the, the types of rations and the supplements that we had, much different than today. So it's, again, primitive back in those days, very primitive. All right, so most of our people are unaware of fire suppression repair, which you deal with a lot. Um, being that we do live in an, an area that uh, very much has fire as part of its ecosystem, mm -hmm. um, beyond the prevention side, um, what do you do with suppression repair? And why is it important to restore um, our ecosystem that we live in? 
Well, fire suppression repair is not anything that's really new. <clears throat> We've had some form of fashion of fire suppression repair right from the beginning. Um, however, with the number of small fires, a lot of times we just, after you put the fire out, you just walked away from it or drove away from it and just left it alone. Uh, anymore with the sensitivity of the land, with the growing populations, um, my personal feelings and, and many people's feelings is that we owe the landowner a, re a responsibility to repair the damage that we do. Um, kind of a way I describe it is you're the property owner, you have some land and has a fence across it. The fence burns down and you want it replaced, that's your responsibility. However, if we get if we tear the fence down, uh, cut it, push it over, drive over it, whatever, then it's our responsibility to replace that fence because we did the damage. So that's where fire suppression repair is. It's the, the damage done by the suppression effort, not what the fire does. And it's important because we need to um, put the land back to the best that we can the way it was before. We recontour the uh, dozer lines, hand lines, put in water bars or some kind of erosion control so that we don't end up with new gullies and washes uh, that weren't there before. Um, we don't open the lands up for new bike trails that don't need to be there. Um, we help prevent erosion and sedimentation in uh, the channels and the reservoirs that we have around here. Uh, we don't do any planting. planting. Um, that's up to the property owner if they want it replanted. And again, you're talking about the environment. Usually they want native plants, what comes from that area, what was there before. They want the seed crop from that to plant right back so that they keep everything as natural as possible and as original as possible. So we tend to stay away from that unless we get some specific requests and have a specific need to do that. Otherwise, we just we let the, the environment and, and nature take its course. All right. So. Uh... Most people are un unaware of the suppression repair that goes on. Um, how is it different here in Orange County than the rest of the state? Um, again, the, the idea of fire suppression repair is one that's accepted statewide, nationally, uh, also nationally. Um, it again boils down to the locations that you're at. As I mentioned, that you know the forest I, I started on was three and a half million acres, hundred thousand people maybe had an influence on it or used that forest, so we didn't have a great human impact. Whereas when you move to Southern California, and you have smaller amounts of open space, more people wanting to use it, that's when fire suppression repair really becomes a factor. So that land can heal itself and get back to the way it was, so people can still enjoy it. Otherwise, they get I don't want to say locked out, but uh, some places will close the land. Forest closes their land uh, until the land heals itself. Um, after this past fire season, some of the parks are closed in portions or in total because they don't want people on there to add to the damage. And so it's very important that we get it restored and as quickly as we can so people can have that enjoyment of being back out in the open spaces rather than looking at a bunch of black sticks and black ground, black grass. Uh, hopefully, with the fire suppression repair, without the erosion, without the bike trails, illegal use, it heals itself and within a year to two years it starts to come back. Great. Um, what work here with the OCFA 
are you most proud of? Uh, I can't say it's just one thing. Um, when I came to work here, it was uh, kind of a new field. Um, there was vegetation management before I came here, but the idea of vegetation management um, started to change drastically and it became more of a resource management. Um, the work that I've done is taking the time to talk to people, to help them understand what the, the problems are so that they would start to recognize the fact that they need to do something to preserve and maintain the, the vegetation that we have in the open space. Um, talk to them on a loss ratio, if you want to call it that way. You, know, you look at 100 acres, and if that's your, that is your 100 acres, and you don't want to lose any of it, then you have to work with us as the fire department to help you provide that protection and the prevention efforts to go into it to keep that as 100% safe. If you don't really care and you're willing to lose all of it, okay, then we'll just back away and say, okay, that's when we fight the fire, then we're just going to more than likely fight a 100-acre fire. So the, the influence that we need has been to working with the conservation agencies, uh, organizations, um, Irvine Ranch um, Water District, uh, Irvine Ranch Conservancy, uh, the county parks, the state parks, uh, Rancho Mission Viejo Land Trust, all these larger organizations to help them understand what the problem is, what needs to be done, and as they have finally, over time, we started to realize that fire does not know the imaginary boundary of a property. It burns across everybody's property. So we brought people together and we formed what we call COAST, County of Orange Area Safety Task Force. And it's all these agencies that I just mentioned, plus a lot more, that have come together realizing that the problem is universal and that we need to work on it universally. And we need, whenever we set a policy or a guideline or a project into motion, that it's not going to stop at, at property boundaries. It needs to go across them because that fire doesn't stop at those things. So that's one of the things that it was a few years in the making. We have some good people, some good organizations. We're getting many things done. One of the main things that also that I'm proud of is um, we got a, a grant, um, an SRA fee grant. <clears throat> we hired a consultant and brought all the people together and over the course of about six months to a year we have developed and it's been approved and signed by everybody that we have a countywide wildland fire protection plan and that identifies areas that need looking at, need concern, uh, some potential uh, mitigation efforts and then as those come up um, and are ready to go then uh, the, the plans are getting written, uh, getting signed off by everybody, all the environmental studies are done, will be done and then we'll proceed with getting these projects implemented and people feeling a little bit safer about their land. And also, the, I guess the third thing that kind of ties in with that is the, the uh, unit fire plan, strategic unit fire plan, that the guidelines that we have to work with under the uh, CAL FIRE for the SRA is that if we want to get a project approved and get some grant funding or some state funding, special funding, then that plan has to be in the unit fire plan. The unit fire plan takes the recommendations from the countywide CWPP 
and incorporates it so we have this real strong tie, not just with us and the fire plan that goes to the state, but also with the wildland, protect, wildland fire protection plan that ties everything together and makes it a real strong backbone to get things done that need to be done in this county. So you've accomplished a lot in your time here. I well, I can't. Yeah, yes, I have. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and for you guys that don't really get to work with George like we do on a on a regular basis, he he does a lot that you guys might not realize. Everything from uh, our interface with our SRA contracts all the way to, like you mentioned, the conservation groups and um, really molding how we're good land stewards as well as a wildland fire agency here in Southern California. Um, it's super important, not only to protect uh, the improvements in the citizens, but uh, also protect our, our natural resources because that's why we live here. Yes. It's and a beautiful place to be. Yes, it is. And um, one of the things that I want to stress, and I've, I've stressed it all along, as good land stewards, that the people who are the actual owners or the um, resource managers, the natural resource managers, they want OCFA to go out to their lands, to learn their lands, learn their roads, so we can get into these places faster. Um, many times I have met with different organizations uh, at the beginning of a fire, and their first comment is, you know, if you guys had slowed down and talked to us, we'd have told you how to get to the fire faster, rather than, because especially in South County with all the development that's going on. There are roads that's on the map. Those roads are not, no longer there. If you try to drive that road, you're going to go into a subdivision. And they have built roads around it, and they have that, that ability to get us there. We just need to get out there and study those roads. And they keep inviting us out, and sometimes we go and sometimes we don't. But they want us out there. Make, give them a phone call. They'll be willing to meet you someplace, drive you around and explain and tell you where the roads go and show you the roads and, and give you a good introduction. And that's, that's not just true South County. Um, we've done it with uh, Chino Hill State Park. We've done it with Crystal Cove State Park, um, county parks, uh, different land trusts. Everybody wants us to come out there and learn the land. So when we get there, we're getting there quick and that we're not tearing up stuff unnecessarily trying to get there. So. That would be a, a suggestion that I would give to um, all of the station captains and all the battalion chiefs and division chiefs. You know, meet these people. They know who they are, but just take half a day, drive around with them, and you'll learn a lot. What will you miss most about fire after <clears throat> you retire? Oh, that's a good question because every fire gets my adrenaline going, whether I'm sitting at home watching on TV or whether I'm here actually participating so um, there's a lot about fire that I'm going to miss uh, as far as fire services in general it's the camaraderie um, the brotherhood that we have um, naturally some good times and some bad times you, you get it maybe get upset with some people but and the, the work, job gets tough but it there's a there's a brotherhood that brings people together and especially from what I've seen in the last 17 years of Orange County is uh, it's tremendous and the work that I do has been rewarding um, the people that I work with have been rewarding 
and I'm going to miss those folks. I'm going to miss the work. Um, so it's, you know, the whole thing has been really enjoyable. It's, it's just been an enjoyable 47 years. I never expected to last this long, but after 47 years, it's time to go home and stay home. All right, George, and you, you've given us some good tips so far on um, just how we can get out there and pre-plan and interface with some of the landowners. Um, but when we're out on the fire line, what are some tips that you can leave us with uh, during an incident um, that we could help prepare for a fire suppression repair or leaving the land in good shape after we leave? I'm glad you asked that. Um, what I, my first reaction is to tell people, when you first arrive, take five. Um, I know as a fire department and as in the fire service, especially when we have uh, responsibilities for structure fire as, long, as well as wildland fire, that we're trained to arrive and react. And even though each situation is different, um, we have a certain protocol that we would follow. And with wildland, it's a little bit different because of topography, because of the changing topography, because of the changing uh, vegetation types and fuel types. Um, my advice is take five and look at it and size it up and say, okay, here's what I've got. Put it in your mind. Here's what I've got. Build your picture. Build your plan. Here's where it's going to go. Based on historical facts, I know that it probably is going to run this way. Based on the weather that's happening right now, it's, this is what's going to happen. And then start to work. And when you do that, I don't want to say take the easiest, but find the easiest routes because maybe direct attack is not going to be the best thing for you. And if you take direct attack, it may cause more fire suppression repair than what it's worth. So as you're looking at it and being at, with an idea of light on the land, uh, if I take this ridge instead of mid-slope, which you shouldn't be doing, but if I take this ridge or the next one over, I can catch the fire easier. I won't be tearing it up. I can keep the bulldozers out of there if, if possible. If bulldozers are needed, put them on there. Just um, try not to put any new scars on the land. And as you're doing that, it's going to make fire suppression repair easier. So fire suppression repair starts at the earliest suppression stages. That's one of the things that I do when I get there. The first thing I do is start sizing up what's going on and where is everything. So I start to build my own idea of fire suppression repair. So it's just, um, as you're putting your line in, as you're uh, running your hose lays, look and think about where you're going to be six hours from now, eight hours from now, 24 hours from now, and did I do stuff? Will what, I, what I'm doing now be effective then? Um, I watched uh, a couple of years ago um, some very energetic firemen pumping hose up through the black, stringing the hose lay up through the black, and they got to the end of their hose and they were still in the black and the fire's already gone. So what good did it do? Um, they weren't really, in my opinion, weren't thinking. So it's, you know, put your thinking cap on, take five when you first arrive, and, and build, build you a good plan. Because usually if you have to go to the second plan, your first one was a total failure and you don't want that. It seems like if you take that approach, it's a good foundation for smart tactics for suppression in general? I believe it is, yeah. It's, um, you know, if you overreact, you may, like I said, you may make your job uh, twice as hard and 
you know, and makes the, the, the end job, this fire suppression repair, the end job, putting it out twice as hard. Just think about it. Maybe, uh, yeah, like you say, think about it. Your, your tactics will be better well planned. All right, George, after uh, 47 years, what's your best war story? <laughs> All the guys got good fire stories. What's your best war story that you could leave us with? I really can't say I've got one. Well, you know, there's, there's been so many fires that um, um, back, I, I was telling you a while ago about, you know, when we went to fires by helicopter, it was the little Bell helicopter, and it carried the pilot and two, two guys. And it was kind of a common thing back in those days that the people that were going to ride be associated with helicopters were always small because... We really didn't know much about density altitude other than the fact that if you put too much weight on the helicopter, it wouldn't get off the ground. And so one day they got a, we got a call, and the fire was quite a distance, and they said that they were going to send the helicopter for us. So we got in. Uh, the helicopter came in, landed. <clears throat> um, my partner and I, another guy about my size, um, climbed in the helicopter, and he was sitting in the middle seat. And what he forgot is that he was sitting in the middle seat. And he took a great big bite of a plug of tobacco. And this was like a 15, 20-minute flight. And he didn't swallow that whole time. He had no place to spit. And he had just had collected all this tobacco saliva in his mouth. And when we finally landed and I got out, he just kind of fell out of the helicopter and just let it all go like he was upchucking a whole mouthful of tobacco. Anyway, he recovered from that. We, we got to the fire, and it was a windy day. And luckily, we had also had, uh, um, on that fire, we had eight smoke jumpers with us. And that was another thing on the forest that we had was uh, a crew of smoke jumpers that came out of Missoula. And so we had a, a plane load, eight smoke jumpers on the fire with us. And um, one of them was a rookie. And if they get their shoots hung up in trees, then it was always the rookie's job to go fetch the tree or fetch the shoot out of the tree and they did not like to cut shroud lines so they had to go up into the tree and then try to pull the chute out over the top of the tree and then let it down and again being windy the guy climbed up took his spurs and he climbed up went all the way to the top and he couldn't get the chute out and so they convinced him well you need to cut the top of the tree out so they ran a saw up to him and and he's holding on and, and the wind's blowing and the trees waving back and forth in the wind and then and he's cutting and they had tied the top of the tree off with a rope down to the guys on the ground so that they could pull it and it wouldn't snap back into his face. And when, the, again, the wind's blowing, you got a picture of this, the wind's blowing, the tree's rocking back and forth, and they jerked the top of the tree out and that tree just started whiplashing back and forth. And this guy's holding on for dear life. And going, Holy crap! And he's going back and forth. And, that was, you know, it was one of those pictures that you've got to see that he thought he was he thought he was a goner and we just on the ground all of us were sitting there just laughing at him and and you know because he was the rookie he didn't know what to do and you know that was that one particular fire has always stuck in my mind just because of the the ignorance or the the uh, I don't want to say ignorance because of the rookie nature that this guy was and we all go through you get caught into some kind of um, mistake, if you want to call it that, that causes some people lots of fun, and it's a story that the guy never lived down. He was there for, he came back year after year for 
about seven or eight years, and he was always known as the guy who got caught in the windy tree <laughs> and almost lost it. But anyway, that was that was one story. And again, you know, a lot of the other fires, it's just there were so many of them that um, they ran together, and the you know it was just, it just became whatever was going on was just part of the day, you know, and it's. Uh, how you got out of, the, when you got off the fire, when you was released, if you were in the middle of the wilderness, you had a 20-mile hike out, or 30-mile hike with all your gear, got picked up someplace, got taken back to a station, got put on another fire, and start all over again. So once the lightning started, you never quit. It was just one right after the other. And there was another time that we, <clears throat> we uh, on a large fire, another one kind of sticks out in my mind, the larger fire, we were shipped from... Uh, New Mexico up to um, the Okanagan National Forest. And we were up there, we traveled all night uh, via aircraft and buses to get to the fire. And we had just been released off of a fire in, in Nevada and we got moved up further north. And uh, the only showers that we had, if you want to call that, was the lake. So every day after shift, everybody would run down to the lake and wash up, and we just put a nice little sheen of soap and dirt and grime across the lake. And we're so far north that they didn't know, and we, all of us that were on that fire were from the southwest. And what made that one memorable is they sent all the way to the southwest to get jalapeno chilies sent up there to make us happy. So just you know, little things like that has made your career the career interesting. Awesome. Um, so that's that ends the list of questions that we had for you today. Um, and I'm just uh, very thankful I got to sit down with you, George, and, and talk to you before you leave. Um, not only are we losing a great resource here in Orange County, but the uh, fire community in Southern California. Um, Thank you. Everything that you do on a daily basis uh, makes a big impact and uh, you'll be sorely missed. Well, uh, I'm going to miss it, but uh, we're passing it off to another good person. Yeah, and um, speaking of that, uh, Dave's not here, um, but, you know, Dave has a, a long history in fire. Um, mm -hmm. he, he worked as a firefighter um, at Volcanoes National Park in Hawaii. Uh, he studied in Idaho, uh, natural resources and restoration ecology. Also has a degree from UCSB. Um, He's young, he's motivated, uh, he's a great fit for the Orange County Fire Authority, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he's been being, been mentored by you for the last few months. Mm -hmm. um, can you give us a little insight on Dave? Uh, Dave um, came to us after a very extensive recruitment period, um, and he was one of the final four. Um, not only did he go through the first round of, of our normal uh, interviews, but when he made the final four, then I had the opportunity of taking separately each one of the finalists uh, back out onto the, across the county, having them re-meet some of the uh, interview panelists and discussing with them. And Dave, by far, was a shiner. Um, with his background, he understands the conservation and environmental side um, he's very intimate with it. He's worked for a, con uh, 
one conservancy here or a couple of conservancies here in Orange County just before he came to us. Um, and with his background, he, he's going to fit a void that we, we had that I really couldn't fit and fill. Um, so he's going to be a good fit for Orange County. He's learning the fireside, and once that gets done, um, which may be a career like for all of us, that we keep learning all the way through, I think he's going to be a good fit. He's going to bring in a different, um, a different mindset. And he's been around since July, and has, um, you know, we had our first meetings where I would sit down and discuss and explain and, and go on and on until it got to the point where it was like, hey Dave, this is your program. Uh, I'll follow you around and provide a hint or an answer if you have the question or if you need a hint. But he's picked up on it. He, uh, I think he's day by day getting more and more comfortable with it. You know, learning curve is for a career, but I think he's going to do, do a real good job. Awesome. And I uh, just want to thank you again, George. Uh, like I said, I've been very fortunate as a member of our hand crew to get to work with you um, on several occasions um, and glean some knowledge off of you, some good conversations, and, and, and I've learned a ton. We're really going to miss you. And um, you guys that are listening out there in the stations, I really just encourage you to uh, get a hold of Dave, um, get a hold of the wildland resource planners, get a hold of the pre-fire management section. Um, if, you, if you really want um, some true purpose into your job as a wildland firefighter, um, jump into jump into the game with these guys and they'll be able to open a whole new world to you um, that you never knew existed as far as wildland fire, fire suppression, fire management, and uh, just being good land stewards here in Orange County. And I would thank you, Danny, and it's been a great pleasure to work with you and the rest of the OCFA. Thank you. Outstanding. Thanks, Danny, for uh, conducting the interview and uh, just giving us an opportunity to say thanks and kind of highlight George uh, and his career. And thank you, George, for sitting down, sharing your stories and your experience with us. Uh, such a wealth of information and such a change in the fire service occurred uh, during your, your tenure. So uh, we'll keep that for years to come. Just again, thank you to you. Um, in fact, it, it's perfect segue to just talk about the future as, as we have outstanding members who have contributed significant amount of their life to this agency. Uh, we also want to give that to additional folks who are, who are moving on um, and maybe have a, a pearl of wisdom or two to impart to us. So in the future, uh, you could see additional folks uh, highlighted on the video newsletter or here on the podcast where we have an opportunity to say, hey, thanks for your service and, and maybe glean a little bit of that great wisdom that, they, that they're taking on into retirement. So anyways, uh, if you're... Um, if you're out there and you have some uh, items that you'd like to see on the podcast or video newsletter, make sure to forward those in to Multimedia, to Kevin Hansen. And uh, again, really appreciate you guys listening. And until next time, watch out for each other and we'll talk to you soon.